Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Most organisations don't understand the critical role emotions play in building culture and a successful business. The New Zealand Merino Company, however, does. Today, we talk with the GM of People and Culture, Teresa Callow. She shares how the company's emotional culture has driven its competitive value proposition, plus how it helped transform the wool industry from volume to value. She joins me, Marielle Daggle, and resident emotional intelligence expert, Dr. Ben Palmer. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you, Marie. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you. Hi again, Ben. Hi, how are you, Marie? And hi, Teresa. Thanks for coming on the program. No problems, Ben. I'm really excited to chat to you and it seems fitting that we're speaking to um, the New Zealand Merino Company on such a cold day when some good quality wool will be helping us all. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Six degrees. Merino's a natural, uh, natural fantastic fabric. <laughs> Very good. Um, I want to start by asking you to share with us a little bit about what um, the New Zealand Merino Company is and what you do. Sure. So um, the New Zealand Merino Company has been around for about 25 years. Um, we are really a sales and well, integrated sales and marketing business for wool um, with a specific focus on Merino. Um, so Merino is an amazing natural fibre um, and comes from various places in the world, but predominantly New Zealand, Australia and South Africa, um, as well as some conditions in um, South America are quite appropriate as well. And um, New Zealand Merino has just had this amazing track record of turning what was really a commodity um, into something that's seen as as a high value um, product. And so um, over the last 20 years, we've delivered so much value, um, monetary value back to growers um, by taking it off the commodity market and establishing really long-term contracts with some of the world's most luxury brands um, and outdoor apparel. So it's quite an amazing time. It is. It's actually one of the things that um, was really interesting is it's, just, it's not just wool, no, no, way, way beyond wool. So I think the, the one thing that really stands apart with New Zealand Merino is that we really want to understand what our consumers, the end consumers and brands really want um, from their fibres and fabrics that they're using. And so, you know, we've got this whole vast array of population that's really driving towards conscious consumerism. They're really they're really aware of what they're, what they're wearing and where it's come from. And so a huge part of our journey has actually been um, looking at sustainability. Um, what, is the, where does the land, what is the land that the animals come from? How are we treating that land? What are we putting on that land? How are the animals treated and how are the people treated in those, in those, on those farms um, that they work with? So it's much, much bigger than that. But consumers are willing to pay for that. Um, and so it's our job to connect that meaningfully and deliver value back to the growers. It's amazing. And it's 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 beyond fibres too. Are you in food as well now? Um, not well. We do have um, a couple of little side, side businesses. Um, so um, the meat where um, these animals are farmed, we also have a little side business there. Um, we also are really kind of thinking about what are the next innovations um, for wool um, as well as 
different textiles as well beyond wool. Um, and so really charging ahead with that. And that's part of the future that we see as being incredibly important for us. So um, our brands have seen what we've done with wool and they want to they want to see if we can replicate that with rubber, with cotton um, and, and, and a whole nother range of different industries because they see the real value from what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And it seems like innovation, when I read through your history, you have a very innovative culture. Yeah, absolutely. We've been um, leading the way, um, not only in Merino, but also with Strongwall, um, which is what we typically, the Romney Rams, is what we typically um, think when we think of sheep. And so using that in the likes of kayaks and surfboards and, um, and knives, there's a whole lot of different applications that we haven't even really um, thought about or considered so innovation is really, and challenging and disrupting is really something that's hugely important to us. Um, and we just don't want to take our foot off the pedal there. Um, and so uh, internal culture is actually something that's really important that allows that to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about how you built that culture or yeah, how you maintain it? Absolutely. So um, I've actually only been with New Zealand Merino Company for nine months. So it's been a real pleasure to Take the credit. <laughs> Take the credit anyway, Teresa. But it has been a real pleasure to kind of step in, step into this world. And I think um, having worked um, with many different businesses and organisations over the years um, for about two decades that haven't had the focus that New Zealand has been actually been, been quite enlightening to have that different perspective. And so, um, you know, I think. Um, it's just it's just a wonderful journey to be on. And when I think about what is the real foundations of it, um, and this is really the example was set by our, um, our former CEO, John Brackenridge, um, who founded the company. He really set the tone for our culture and kind of what has made this company great. And um, it's always been about listening to brands, listening to the end consumer and showing a real respect for the fact that we're dealing with people day in and day out. And if you want to influence the industry and if you want to disrupt an existing business model, you really have to listen really carefully um, and be really in tune with people what they're telling you and give them a real sense of optimism for the future. And so being very connected to people, having very deep and narrow relationships um, that are very trusted um, has been absolutely paramount to the success and the insights um, that John gleaned over the years and those insights are what we've turned into reality. Teresa, those things sound very explicit to you now, like you are able to articulate them very readily and easily. Yet it also sounds like this culture emerged rather organically through the leadership and the way this particular person that you mentioned carried themselves. Is it also explicit now? Is this sort of stuff written down? Have you read it in some sort of onboarding guide and do you share it around? Or is it still just how we are, for example? Um, So it has become very explicit to me um, over the last three months as we have farewelled um, our founding CEO um, and looked at the legacy that he has left behind. Um, But it has always been part of our kind of cultural DNA. Um, And I think as we have, as 
is kind of we understand people um, and understand how psychology works and the and the importance of psychology um, and human behavior and understanding people and understanding what's happening in the brain when we get positive feedback what's happening in the brain when we get negative feedback um, has as that has advanced um, we've become more explicit um, around how we actually talk about it um, and so now it's becoming it is really a core part of our strategy and has been for the last five years but we're really nailing the difference of what makes us different and how we can continue to build that for the future um, and make sure that we don't don't lose sight of it. Fascinating. Are these some of the things you spoke about about listening and building strong deep relationships is that fundamental to an emotional culture Ben, like what we're here to talk about emotional culture versus a cognitive culture. So when I hear Mm. Teresa talk, it sounds to me like, oh, that sounds okay. I I can see that would be a part of building an emotional culture. Is that correct? And what else is there to it? Cognitive culture and emotional culture are very interrelated and they overlap and they contribute to one another. However, to make them a little bit more distinct, just for the purpose of answering that question, When you think about cognitive culture, you usually think more about the thinking and the behaviours and the mindsets that you bring to business. And, Teresa, as I was listening to you um, talk about the concern for the environment, I was really hearing a mindset that is of of a long-term focus rather than a short-term focus, for example. Um, We're also hearing a lot about innovation, and I'm sure there are mindsets and behaviours that go with that. Emotional culture, on the other hand, sometimes is a bit of the outcome of that. Um, Is it fun? Uh, It probably is for the people who like innovation and like being at the leading edge and and so on. Uh, But, yeah, emotional culture, Marie, is more how are people feeling? And emotional culture can be both explicit, like it is at Southwest Airlines, where having fun and being an individual is very much embraced and, and lived, or it can be implicit. Um, you know, a leader uh, can be someone who listens very well. When people feel listened to, they often feel cared for, for example. So you hear both the cognitive stuff, it's really important for us to listen to people, and the outcome of that and being on the more of the emotional side, I feel cared for and listened to as an individual. That creates a certain emotion really around trust. Let's think about um trust for a moment as being a part of your emotional culture, whether you, whether there's high trust or low trust. Um, organizations with a high trust culture, I think, have embraced flexible working practices and working from home very, very easily because they trust their people to do the right thing, whether they're working in the office or not. Low trust cultures, I think, you know, you've got leaders demanding people come back to work three days a week because how do we really know whether people are working well unless we can see that they're actually doing it? Does that make, does that make sense? So, yeah, Teresa, I don't know if you'd add to that, how you, uh, you know, distinguishing between the two. Be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, um, I think it's a very clear um, uh You've clearly articulated the difference between both cognitive and emotional culture. Um, the real difference that I feel here is that um, emotional culture is often seen as the outcome of an effective culture. We talk about employee engagement, about how people feel and are they going to then um, engage in discretionary behaviours and go above and beyond and um, 
I guess I've seen the flip of that here at New Zealand Marino, which has been really interesting, that we've started off with our emotional culture at the forefront. Um, so we start off by how do we make our people feel um, right from the very start and, and then navigating from there. And the more cognitive elements tend to come later for us. Um, so a really good example of that and every kind of stakeholder relationship that um, or every visitor that we have to our New Zealand Merino offices, we have a welcoming sheep, which is essentially this massive sheep that's about one by one and a half metres and it's got a whiteboard on the front of it. And right on the front of that whiteboard for every visitor that comes into our office, we put a welcome to them. And this really feeds that recognition that they are being recognised as an individual um, and that they are important and that they are of significant status that we do an individual welcome for them. And that really sets, it's a very small gesture, but it really sets a, a scene of that they feel important, that they feel recognised and that they feel um, welcomed into our space. Um, and we see that feeling really when we go into a meeting, then it really opens up that conversation because it fast tracks that trust element that you were talking about. Well, so it sets a very high standard. Where do you go from there? How do you maintain? <laughs> how do you maintain that well, that level across all your interactions? This is interesting. I'd love to jump in here and say what we've been talking a lot about so far is when cognitive culture and emotional culture are actually interrelated and aligned nicely and producing relevant outcomes for each other. Of course, the opposite can also be true. You can say, for example, oh, the customer is absolutely right and always right and we're going to have a high customer-focused kind of culture. Inadvertently, that can sometimes make the employee feel like the lesser person in the wheel, um, oh, they care for the customer, but not not us. And so you don't see care behaviours often come from employees who feel like a number in the world. So it's very easy to get a misalignment between the two, and that can become very interesting. You know, you can say in a lot of hospitals, we really need, you know, our work is all about caring for the health and well-being of people. And yet in a lot of hospitals here in Australia, and I'm sure in New Zealand as well, people feel overworked, overwhelmed and not cared for uh, at all. And so there's a real mismatch, if you like, between what the organisation does, the values and beliefs that drive its cognitive culture and how employees are actually feeling underneath the surface, their emotional culture. But it sounds at uh, your organisation, Teresa, that you've really got that alignment and that nice synergy between the two happening. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think it is always a challenge or reflection to look at the synergy and the balance that you have between the two. I think we at times may prioritise um, different stakeholders over another. Sometimes the internal focus is very strong um, and then sometimes our brand focus is very strong. Um, but there is a prevailing mindset um, around trust, um, very deep and narrow relationships that go beyond that surface level um, and to do that we know that we need to care. Manakitanga is um, something in Māori culture that we, that we always talk about. Um, Manakitanga is about the care that you show each and every person um, and so that's been one of the fundamental um, kind of parts of our culture around treating people with kindness and care. Is that mm -hmm. is that embedded like what 
is that demonstrated through the way you treat each other or has the business built systems, processes, policies that ensure that your business behaves or you're the people within the business always behave and focus on those things. So for example, you were recently recruited. Were you, were you tested against certain values or um, how did they make sure that you'd be a good fit culturally? Mm. Um, culture fit is a huge part for us um, in terms of our recruitment process. Um, and you know, for every single individual um, that has an interview here or gets through to the final kind of set of interviews, the second interview, um, they actually meet with um, not only their hiring manager but other members of the team um, and they also meet either the CEO or our COO, CFO. Um, and so we're, we're very fortunate that we're quite a small organisation. There's um, 65 of us here. But um, that's a really key part of our key part of our process, and they um, those two people are very good gauge um, and really help in getting that sign off for that cultural fit. Um, but we do tend to know um, as soon as people kind of come into the come into the office um, here. I was just talking to a visitor today, um, and she said while I was sitting down waiting for the five minutes, I had three people come over and ask me um, if I was okay and was I was I being looked after and offered me a coffee. And so can you kind of get that feeling and seeing how people respond when they come in here, um, you get a real feeling of how they treat others, how they treat our receptionist. That is a very good, um, it's, a, it's a very good signal of how they will fit into our culture. What about, do you guys do any, how do you measure the health of your culture? Like, is it is it that you just can, can feel it or is there business indicators? What do you look for to make sure that your culture is in check? Um, that's, that is a bit of a tricky one um, as we've only really just come to the point where we're um, articulating it and really defining it well. Um, and so we always have like a lot of other um, organisations done uh, annual engagement survey or an annual culture survey um, that has traditionally focused um, more on the cognitive aspects of our culture around accountability, um, around some of the aspects of empowerment, development, um, and and loads of those cultural or more cognitive aspects. Recently, we've started using um, an emotional culture deck um, and prioritising talking about our emotional culture um, as we navigate a new team session or a strategy session. Um, so they have been really at the forefront um, of the start of a discuss discussion and at the end of a discussion. Um, and I think you can really, um, whilst we've got that using an emotional culture deck to um, accentuate, I think it is really something that you just feel. You walk in here and you can feel it. Um, and that's a good enough sig signal for most of us. So mm. Mm. That's really interesting. There are a number of different ways organisations are measuring emotional culture at the moment from what I can gather um, they're either not measuring it at all or they're measuring um, the outcome of it are our employees engaged or they're measuring um, emotions on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. So I know some companies have, uh, you know, the typical non-smiley face through to smiley face and asking people to hit the button on the way out of work just as a way of sort of checking in on how, yeah, how are people feeling on a day-to-day -day basis and oh, then really? averaging that up. 
And then, uh, you know, personally, I think one of the best approaches to this is the kind of approach that Teresa's been talking about where you get people together to talk about using something like an emotional culture deck. Uh, and it's a great deck of cards for anyone uh, who hasn't come across it. Using and that as a way of talking about what are the feelings that we want to experience here that are aligned to our success, that drive our company culture forward, what are perhaps some emotions that get in the way of that, and then having various mediums, uh, whether it be explicit meetings to talk about it, uh, things like that. We've got a couple of aged care facilities uh, and clients at the moment who are using the emotional culture deck to say, okay, as a facility, how do we want to feel on a day-to-day basis and what are the sorts of things that we can do with each other to help move us towards uh, those ideal feelings, if you like. Yeah. Uh, And I just want to plug at the moment, Genos's emotional uh, culture index, which is a free tool that people can use if they're interested. <laughs> Our particular approach to it um, really is to look at a set of emotions, both pleasant and unpleasant, and to ask people through an anonymous survey to indicate how much of those emotions they expect to experience given the nature and context of their work, how much are they currently experiencing and how much would they ideally like to experience so that you get a spider diagram on those three. Ideally, we'd like to be here. Given our context, here's where we think we should be on a day-to-day basis and here's where we actually are. And look at those levels of alignment between those three. How often would you do that, Ben? I think it's um, a bit context-specific. You know, if you're really on the journey of, defining and measuring and and starting out, you might look at it more frequently, twice a year, once a year. Um, Teresa, I think it's a great question for you. How often are you guys looking um, explicitly at it through those things that you talked about before? Whereas some, you know, some organisations might take a look at it once every couple of years. It really depends, I think, a bit on your context and and, uh, the business environment you're in. Teresa? Yeah, we're probably looking at it almost on a case-by-case basis. Um, So, you know, I think it is really helpful to facilitate conversation when things are not going um, quite as planned or you get a sense of misalignment. Um, I have looked at it when we've launched a couple of new policies um, to the business around responsible hosting um, and just to get a sense of how were people feeling about it? How did this make them feel? Was it making them feel empowered? Was it making them feel secure? Um, Was it making them feel proud? Um, Or was it doing the opposite? Was it actually um, making them feel restricted? And so just it was was very useful to kind of for us to plug and play where um, where we see that there's a real strong need. Mm. Interesting. Is it common, I'm sorry if this sounds like such a Silly question, but I'm not in the HR space as often as you guys are. How how common is it for you to find yourself in a company where everybody already accepts that emotional culture or how people feel matters? I think it's quite uncommon here in Australia, to be to be frank, and that's why it's so great is to it? have Teresa on the show. I think Australian businesses have a long way to go in this particular area. And I think it's very timely for Australian businesses to be stepping back and thinking about this in a more explicit way. Theresa here, you may or may not be aware, but we've just had new laws come into place around psychological safety. And of course, emotional culture is a big part of your psychological safety, whether it's a psychologically safe workplace or not. 
are people feeling valued, cared for, consulted, informed, understood, or are they feeling mistreated? Are they feeling like a number in the world? Are they feeling overwhelmed, under underloved, that sort of thing? And so uh, I think, yeah, Australian businesses have a long way to go. One of the things that I think, or one of the perhaps really uh, prominent Australian businesses that did a lot of work in this space back in the early 2000s was ANZ Bank. They wanted to become the bank with the human face. Uh, the banking world back in sort of the early 2000s is very transactional here in Australia. And John McFarlane, when he took over ANZ Bank, saw an opportunity to differentiate based on customer service. But the strategy there was to become more human on the inside so that we would dealt with customers in a more humane kind of way on the outside, in other words, to become the bank with a human face. And it, that was incredibly successful, that uh, that particular cultural change program. On the other hand, uh, I can think about some big mining companies that have a very strong focus on achievement, uh, but uh, too much of a focus on results and achievement. And along the way, do things like accidentally blow up cultural sites here in Australia and things like that because they're not thinking enough about uh, the unintended outcomes of having a high achievement-oriented culture in their business and people can probably guess about the organisation I'm talking about. Sorry, Marie, that was very long-winded, but I hope that paints a picture, at least here in Australia, (laughs) about ANZ, a company that did it really well. Back in the early 2000s, I don't know about the culture at ANZ at the moment, but, uh, and yeah, another example of where I think a bit more of an explicit focus on what's the emotional outcome, what's the um, quality of decisions like when we have too much of a focus on a particular cultural driver. Well, it also, when I hear Teresa speak, it makes me think that, wow, that actually sounds like a great company to work for. So I'm wondering, in the in an environment where it's very difficult to find talent, how do you guys go with recruitment and retention of staff? It's to be honest, we have only had one lever um, since the start of the year um, out of our company of sixty. So that's a pretty good testament to our, kind of our cultural feel at the moment. Um, and you know, I think for us at a time of when our founding CEO is exiting and got a new CEO coming on board, we're very excited about that result in terms of the strength of our culture um, and and it's linked to retention of staff. We have recruited quite a few um, quite a few roles over the last six months as well as we are expanding um, and growing. And we haven't had any problems kind of attracting staff and they do one our, our culture is one of the key things that or key reasons why people want to work here. So um, yeah. how do you put your culture on how do you spread the word that your culture is so amazing? How did you build that as part of your employer brand? Yeah, it's actually something that we need to put more effort and focus into. Um, so that's the one thing I've been harping on about since I started with New Zealand Merino um, because we haven't really put it out there. We haven't put out our employer brand to the world. You can feel it as soon as you come into our premises, um, but that's only if you walk in the door. And so whilst we did was the 2019 New Zealand Supreme Business Awards, we won that in 2019 and our culture was part of that. There hasn't been a lot of attention to what is our, um, uh, what is our employment brand 
um, or an employee value proposition. So it's something that I want to um, work on over the next kind of 18 months. This is uh, one of the big things that uh, I was going to mention there is who is putting out your employment brand? Um, a lot of the people who put your employment brand out there are the employees that are leaving your organisation. And uh, you don't even have to go on Indeed or Seek or any of those kind of recruitment platforms to find reviews of companies from people who've left. And uh, some of those reviews are very insightful on what the company's emotional culture is kind of of like. And yeah, if you're a big business out there and you haven't checked up on or a small business haven't checked up on what your employees are saying when they leave the business on those type of employment uh, job sites, it's worth a look because uh, it, it will really get, grab your attention, I think, in whether it's positive or not so positive. Do people actually do that, review the companies they've worked for? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they do. Mm. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Wow. Maybe I'll go back and leave a few <laughs> retrospectively. Re- retrospectively. <laughs> and, of course, you know, in a tight labour market like we're in now, um, mm. future employees are often reviewing your company culture on those sites before they hit, yeah, I think I'll apply for that job as well. So um, I think, again, as a, as a company, as an employee attraction and retention strategy, it's a very good uh, strategic lever to pull on your emotional mm. culture, your cognitive culture. I guess I just want to jump in there, Ben, because um, I think it is a really important lever to pull. And I think as we have been talking, there's more and more talk in the industry about storytelling and the importance of storytelling um, to create a picture, evoke emotions um, and stories are a really critical element to, uh, to a company's emotional culture. And whether that be stories of the past um, and a legacy that's left behind or the stories of visions for the future um, and telling those stories in a way that people are proud of. Um, And I think that's a really key element of our employee value proposition or our employee um, brand that we actually have promoted through the stories that we're telling out in the market Um, and any kind of interviews, any letters, anything that's out there in mainstream media tells a story. Um, So I think that's probably how we have managed to kind of retain this this great brand and actually share it with the world. Mm. Fantastic. You made me think about... uh the National Critical Care and Trauma Response Centre here in Australia, up in Darwin. I went there uh, just a few weeks ago. And as you walk into the National Critical Care and Trauma Response Centre, all along the walls are photographs that tell the story of the significance of our National Critical Care and Response Centre and give you a real feel for the culture of the place. So you walk in and you are met with lots of photographs of them responding to the Bali bombings and helping all the, the Australians who flew into from Bali into our National Critical Care and Trauma Centre. You see presidents who were um, shot and tried to be assassinated. You see uh, King uh, Charles when he visited the place. There's all this memorabilia up around the walls that tell an incredible story and uh Professor Len Latraris, who runs our National Critical Care and Trauma Centre, uh, will grab your uh, grab you by the arm and, and give you a walk around the halls of this place um, before anything else to really 
help you understand the, the important role it plays uh, in Australia. Yeah, likewise, we have on our entrance, um, we have a big set of screens. Um, and when we have Icebreaker or Laura Piana or Hugo Boss come in, those screens are all customised for them and show a picture of their um, of their history walking alongside New Zealand, the New Zealand Merino Company and also tell a story of where their walls come from, so from the actual grower properties. And probably like as you were just describing, as you walk around our office, there's pictures of sheep, um, there's pictures of a lot of our growers and their stations, but we also have a whakapapa wall. So whakapapa is essentially an Indigenous legacy and what's the legacy left behind? Um, and there's 16 boxes on that wall um, and each of those boxes tell a story, um, tell a story about our past. So the original news article that was published saying don't go near the New Zealand Merino Company, they're trying to ruin the wool industry in New Zealand. There's the original copy of that. Um, and it just sent um, growers' books around sharing details um, when, the sh- when the sheeps are shorn. Um, all of those are up on our wall and really tell a tale that we walk past every single day um, that really helps people evoke their sense of purpose of what they're doing um, and the vision for the future. It's um, You can really see the care you know, that we care value come through in the way you treat your people, the way you, you treat and respect your growers and the way that you treat your partners that come in and they walk through the door. Your business is 25 years old now. Was that the standard set from the very outset or was there a business decision? Like I just wonder whether the the, the founder went, no, this is just how we want to do business and who we want to be. Um or was it a moment where people sat around a table and said, no, we need to build a brand that does X, Y, and Z? What do you think? I think it was a whole lot more organic than that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't probably anything. Um, it wasn't sitting around board table and making a decision about it. I think at the very heart of this business um, is that innovation lens and getting people to trust you. You're, you're challenging brands to do something different that they've never done before. And so at the heart of that, you have to influence people. And we are, you know, we are a sales and marketing company for wool. Um, and so the influencing influencing others and influencing an industry does take um, understanding how people feel and getting in people's heads. Um, you're not necessarily, the rational side definitely needs to be there, Um but if you can sit around a table, make people really feel excited about that future. Um, and so I think it's that that started off um, kind of a series of events and excited people about jumping on the journey. Um, and it's just over time we've become a little bit more articulate about it. Um, it's been defined and is now a core part of our business strategy. Mm. Yeah, it almost sounds like somewhere along the way you guys went, hang on, this is a real superpower that we've got. That kind of happened organically and went, hang on, this is this is incredible. And we can see the benefit across different parts of our business. How do we really explicitly mm. nail that down and amplify it? I think I've talked to Ben about this before, but um, that amplification, um, a lot of people say, let's do the 80% and then they little bits on top, they don't really matter. It's the 80% that matters. We focus on the smallest little 5% that makes that engagement and experience 
so different. Um, so when we host brands here in New Zealand, we're always talking about how can we amplify the experience so this is absolutely unforgettable for them. And a huge part of that sits around that personalisation um, in terms of personalization of that experience um, and how we and bringing them bringing these luxury um, brands from Italy to a growers station or farm um, which is in the middle of nowhere but has the most amazing views how do we amplify everyone's experience so it is the trip of a lifetime mm. that's that's very insightful I, I really do think that your emotional culture, when it's aligned to purpose is and and amplified, that's when you really uh, get it humming. And it's interesting. I, it doesn't. I think the tr- thing Teresa is also giving us, Marie, is the fact that it doesn't feel like it's an insurmountable mountain that nobody, you know, that very few climb. It, it actually feels quite practical, quite doable. Um, just needs a bit of forethought and a bit of focus on it. And I, I also yeah. took, yeah, I think it, it can be done and it's achievable, but what I'm also taking from it is it has to be believed in and your, you know, the leaders and the people in the business have to believe that it's going to make a difference and have to want to be a part of it because it's all those behaviours, isn't it, At, from the top right through to the people on the front line is everybody has to be on board for it to work, particularly when it comes to, you know, the way you operate with your colleague or the way you speak to your partners or, you know, whatever it may be, it has to come through all parts of your business. I, in my line of work, so I'm in marketing and I often get asked in my, in my facilitator and trainer days, I've helped a lot of companies develop their, you know, their core values and their mission and their vision and just to, you know, help them articulate it. And my biggest issue with values when we've been asked to help people with them is, is to say, it's not, the words that matter, it's its the behaviour, it's that you actually mean what you're saying and this value is visible. And that that's the hard part, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like making people live those values day, day to day. It's a really interesting point because we have struggled um, and it has become a topic for many years to articulate our values. We keep on coming back to care and kindness as being something that definitely drives us. But, and, you know, we've talked about innovation here today, mm. purpose and sustainability um, and being guardians for the land that um, our, our, our product comes from. But we've really struggled to articulate what are our, what are our values, um, particularly as we pivot and change so quickly. Our sense of purpose is extremely clear in why we are in this game and what we're trying to do. Um, but almost the values um, is, as you say, what you see, what you what you feel, um, and I don't I, I do struggle with that. Um, and if we will actually go down the track of defining our values or behaviours, and I don't think we will. I think your purpose is enough mm. for us, and that's enough of a guiding light. You know what? I think mm. you have the opposite problem, right? You've got amazing values, and they're embedded in your business, and they have huge impact. So I almost feel your challenge when you're writing your values might be that the words don't really capture the scale of impact and just how huge and meaningful and powerful those values are. So when you look at those words on the screen, it might look insignificant compared to what it means in the business. You almost need a manifesto. 
Oh, that's funny. We have talked about that. Um, but I think you've actually hit the nail on the head because we do talk about we're in the relationship business, but we are in the relationship business like no one else. We feel like we're in no with no one else. We're a, we feel like we're in another league. Um, and so we don't want to say that because it seems to diminish the real value of it. Um, yeah, diminish. That was the word I was looking for, Teresa. Yeah, I don't know. For you, it's like it's you're very lucky because it's not what you say, it's what you're showing and you're demonstrating it really well. A huge congratulations to you guys. You sound like, well, you are an amazing company, but it sounds like an amazing place to work as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. It's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. You've set a high bar. <laughs> Lots of great things for us all to think about there, particularly, again, as we're thinking about psychological safety and the way people are feeling uh, at work. Thank you, Teresa. Really appreciate it. Thank you for welcoming me. My pleasure. See you. 